And we're back. And we're back. So I'm here with my friend Dan, one of my oldest and closest friends from school, who's travelling around Africa with me. If you haven't heard the last episode, then that you should probably listen to that first because this is a dispatch from the continent of Africa. Uh, and part two, uh, this is part two, and I thought I would include Dan because uh, why not? He's here with me. Where are we right right now? We're in, I think we've just moved over into what's known as the western region of Ghana. So mm. we're heading towards the uh, border to Cote d'Ivoire and we're just west of a place called the Cape Coast. Cape Coast was the main place where they would, uh, I guess, throw slaves into a dungeon and then have uh, fine tea and the governor's house on top, looking out over a pretty stretch of quite idyllic tropical coastline. Which is so, let's talk about some of the things that have surprised us. I mean, I think the, the idyllic nature of the coast is was unexpected. Sure, I me. sent I sent a photo uh, back to my family, and um, one of them said, "Geez, you 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 would be surprised to pick that as being something other than the South Pacific." So yeah. I, I certainly wasn't expecting palm that. trees, endless stretches of beautiful beaches. Probably can't swim in the water. Locals say that that's because the surf is too rough but it's really because most locals can't swim and also there's a lot of effluent that <laughs> runs off from... So we've been... Or at least we're suspicious of <laughs> we're, that. We are certainly yeah. suspicious. There seems to be a, a kind of a silty uh, a hue to, <laughs> to the water. Sometimes chocolatey. Sometimes I would call it a chocolatey hue, yeah, uh, to the water. But out, out past the breakers, you, you can see beautiful blue... Uh, the it looks like what you would imagine the Seychelles or Zanzibar or Madagascar or something to be, uh, probably because it's very similar because it's the same continent as all of those places. Yeah, probably the same latitude as well. That, there you go. Uh, so we're out on the western side of uh, Ghana, and this is basically the tippy-top end of our trip, which wraps up tomorrow. Um, why don't we talk about the good things uh, about Africa, and then we can talk about some of the bad things. Specifically about West Africa, Dan's looking very apprehensive. Like, you're not going to get cancelled for this. No, I was just thinking, actually, I was, you know, when you travel fast through a lot of places quickly, you see a lot of people, a lot of places, a lot of new experiences, it actually becomes kind of difficult to just remember back even a few days. Yeah. What were we doing? What were we doing? I don't know. Yes. What are we doing? What even? Why even are we doing this? I addressed this on the last episode that this was a, a pandemic era conceived attempt to go to the dirtiest and most misbegotten places that we could imagine. Um, I mean, it's ended up being. I think my takeaways would be it's it's much more naturally beautiful than I thought it would be in a in a mm-hmm. traditional tropical island paradise kind of way. People are extremely friendly, yeah, but I think I was one. expecting that. And uh, it's so much more, like we are so much more fish out of water than I think any other place we've probably been. Maybe since we were 19 years old or whatever we were traveling around right. Laos right. before Laos was a place where anybody went. Right. And I think that's a feature of what we were looking for. So I think it kind of ticks some of the boxes in terms of our kind of plan of what we wanted, what we wanted to experience. Yes. That's been enjoyable. Yep. Yep, and, and I think it's, we've been wise to not get a tour guide the whole way and have a car that's driving us around, which we actually are doing for the final three days of the trip because we got so sick of bush taxis where they just cram you. So the trip, for example, from Togo 
into Ghana. We had an eight-hour travel day, almost exclusively crammed into... I mean, the first car, it was a normal car, and there were six people in it, three in the back, two in the front passenger seat. Yeah, but we should probably count <laughs> ourselves lucky. That's well, yeah, probably that's right. curious. Normally it's probably eight. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And we weren't in the front seat sitting on the gear stick. That's right. Uh, the, the other notable thing for me from that day was when we were crossing from Togo into Ghana to, to commemorate the time as you were going into the customs office in the middle of the bush, in the middle of the jungle with absolutely nothing around. I took a photo of you with this sort of customs office in the background and immediately someone pulled at my shirt and said, you know, you can't do that. So I kind of knew that might happen. But then the next step was we walked into this little tiny building and a, a it's guy... It's a shack. It's you a can shack. call it a shack. It's a shack. It's a shanty. And this is not the main border crossing, right? I mean, the oh, main no, border crossing between Togo and Ghana would be remote enough, but this is the remotest of the remote yes. border crossings between two remote countries. Yeah, three-metre-wide dirt track with puddles and potholes everywhere with a small shack kind of cut into the jungle. And, a, you know, a six-foot-four, 100-kilo guy... <clears throat> who's the obviously the chief of this outpost comes up and literally threatens multiple times to beat me yes. for taking that photo. Why would you take that photo? <laughs> I will drag you in here and beat you in the head. Yeah, there so was a lot of that. There was, and I felt a mixture of fear and indignation that mm. something so I was just commemorating, you know, the passing of a border and then, you know, the crossing of a country. Also, even if you even if it is against the rules, uh, you know, you can't take photos in the customs area at many an airport, Dan. Yes. And it was a shame because as you say, the whole trip at like a, a, a notable feature of the whole trip has been the extreme friendliness of people. Yeah. And I feel like the first instance of when you make eye contact, it can look like there's a there's some concern or apprehension kind of in their eyes. And as soon as you say hello, they're so welcoming, so friendly, wanting to uh, talk to you, understand more, instantly within five seconds of talking, wanting to swap numbers, start uh, mm. start WhatsApping and promise to call in, in the number of days. Yeah, and take selfies. Uh, the kids here are crazy about taking selfies oh, with, yeah. with white people. I mean, we do look stunning, uh, obviously. <laughs> uh, we're strikingly handsome. So who wouldn't want to take a photo with us? But it's cute. It's adorable. It is. Yeah. It is. I think I've got about six or eight WhatsApp threads running with just yeah. random people who've met throughout this trip, which yeah. is, a, you know, it's a, it's a really nice thing. That uh, and mention. are you going to marry all of them or just some portion, some subset of them? I'll have to talk to my wife first, mm, okay. maybe just a portion. I might want to get to know them just a little bit more first. It's un that's understandable. Uh, it's interesting that it was actually when we crossed into Ghana, which is the most developed of the three countries that we're travelling through, that that kind of hostility from officialdom began. And it's also the first time I got asked for a bribe at any border crossing when I was at the at the outbound... No, it was inbound inbound customs. Yes. Which is... It sounds so official, but, but just beyond the shed where he almost drug your head in and beat it in No, uh, but that in was in head. Togo. This is after you've crossed into Ghana and the Ghana customs officials were very friendly. That's true. They were great. So it was the... Out, you're right. It was a Togolese guy who did that. But then... the. Five minutes later, on yes. the Ghana side of the border, was when I got my first bribe request. Which, you, said, which you then passed directly on to me. Well, and I said, was hey, walking Dad, away. He wants some money from you. <laughs> I was walking away. I said, I had, I unzipped my suitcase. Uh, we are like classic 
uh, know-nothing backpackers in the sense that Dan didn't want to buy a backpack. So instead he was like, let's bring wheelie carry-on bags. <laughs> and I was like, we're going to look like some, we're gonna look like Meryl Streep out of Mamma Mia or like, you know, like the old lady in White Lotus with our bags dragging through the dusty streets of West Africa. Nonetheless, I relented. Uh, so I've got this, uh, this wheelie carry-on bag and at the customs, which, I, as I say, is a very glorified way of saying it's a trestle table under a tarp. Uh, and there's a guy standing there and he, and you have to open up the suitcase and he says, I do have gadgets. And I said, what? <laughs> and Dan, you were the only person who understood what he was saying. Do you have gadgets? Uh, so apparently he was on the hunt for gadgets. Yeah. Don't know why. And he said, uh, he said, I don't want to um, like take everything out of your bag and strew, uh, put it, have it strewn everywhere so you have to repack it. And I said, that's very kind. Thank you. And you'd want, you had, you'd already been cleared at yeah. this stage, right? Uh, and I said, that's very kind. And then he said, uh, perhaps you would give us a little tip. Uh, and I said, no, thank you. And I started zipping up my bag and he said, do you understand me? And I said, yes. And he said, so, and I said, you're asking me to give you money. And he was like, yes. <laughs> and I was like, and I said to you, thank you, but no. And then I zipped up my bag and, and I pulled I'm, my bag off the okay. trestle table and I started walking away. And then he did what in West Africa means, hey, come here, which is tss, yeah. tss. Then attention. I turned around, yeah. And that was when uh, you came over and I said, uh, he, he, <laughs> he, wants, he, he wants, wants a little tip. Yeah. Uh, but I liked, I liked my excuse. Your so excuse I, was great. I reached into, it was half true too. I reached into my wallet, which had some euro bills, but maybe you didn't see those, and pulled out my last bill from Togo, which I was keeping for my kids as a souvenir, and said to him, it's my last note. I was going to give it to my kids as a souvenir. Yeah, you specifically you really said my daughter. To, my daughter. Can, can you give this to my daughter, daughter as a souvenir? Do you really want to take this from me? Yeah. And then he said, no, go on. So I thought yeah. that was like maybe I'm not even sure exchange. he said that, that definitively. I think you just said, do you so want to I'm take it from now. me? Yeah. <laughs> and I said, you wouldn't do that, would you? Or something to that effect. Right. And then... You just put it back in your wallet and we walked away and he didn't go, Tss. Yeah, exactly. And so that was a triumph. Yeah. And then the, the other interesting thing about the corruption thing is, is once we started driving in Ghana, I mean, not driving ourselves, but being in these, these cramped little cars that function, that, that double as taxis, there are roadblocks maybe every, what, 20 or 30 kilometres yeah. where there are a couple of snoozy gendarmes often dressed just in a shorts and a black t-shirt that says police across the front like you might buy in a novelty store and the driver and they they just eyeball the car figure out whether or not they want to bribe that a particular car and then they wave them over the driver gets out gives them money and they're allowed to go on yeah but that didn't happen once in benin or togo no that's this right this has been specific to Ghana, which, which that's is surprising. Yeah, me. that's interesting because Benin and Togo are supposedly, well, they are the less developed places where you might, ex there, there might be more of an expectation. But maybe you need to reach a certain level of development for corruption to, like, be <laughs> viable. There just aren't, there isn't the, there isn't the police workforce in Benin. Maybe that's, that's an interesting have, thesis. You know, it's like, we'll, we'll have to research into that. Well, it's a much more informal, it strikes me as a much more informal, informally arranged country. Like the, the social bonds, we were remarking on how the social bonds seem so strong, seem extremely strong. People just mm. stop mm. and start talking to each other in the street, even if they don't know each other. There seems to be an enormously cohesive yes. cultural 
arrangement. So maybe you don't need as many cops. It's like a big village, except that it's big enough that people don't know each other but still interact that way. Yeah, that's right. I'm not Uh, sure how that relates to the bribery, but... Well, you may need less institutionalised law enforcement in a place where where villages... Yeah, where villages basically sort it out for themselves, like tribes sort it out for themselves. Yeah, that's possible. Probably. Uh, anyway, when we're in this bush taxi and he, about the third road stop that the guy gets to and pulls over and goes out, and I, I say in French to the French, to our uh, Togolese uh, car mates all crammed in, are those real police? And they say, yeah. And I say, why is he paying them? And they, one of them laughs and says, this is Africa. Such an obvious, <laughs> like, what did, why, why would you ask that question? He said, he said, doesn't that happen in Australia? I said, uh, no, if a policeman did that in Australia, he'd go to jail. And they were, like, shocked. Yeah, yeah. They were absolutely shocked. What so, else? Yeah. Tell, me, tell me what else is maybe if you think back to how you imagined this part of the trip prior to coming compared to the reality of how you've experienced it what else has surprised you i thought it was i thought more of it was going to be dirtier and harder mm-hmm. like i thought more of it was going to be like what lome ended up being which is right. a big developing world polluted city covered in shit yeah you know yeah. and not much of it has been like that actually no that's true in fact a lot of fastidiousness in in People's upkeep, yeah. their, pride, their pride of their, if they have a motorbike, there's yeah. constant washing of bikes. And, yeah, yeah. You know, maybe as expected, a, a million hairdressers dotted throughout yeah, the Yeah, that's right. Landscape. A lot of coiffures. Yeah. Uh, I, I wouldn't have, I couldn't have anticipated the slowness of service. Right. Uh, it, night, it's inconceivable. It, I don't even understand it. How long was it, Josh, between it was, when we ordered and when we got dinner last when night? When we ordered, yeah, it was two and a half hours between ordering and being <laughs> served. Like, and that's not a problem for no. them. That's not unusual. It wasn't because they were busy. No, just, there was no one, nothing else to do, no one else to serve. It's just yeah, you've got to learn some time. patience. Yeah, you've got to learn some patience. So today we ordered at... Two o'clock at two p.m. and said, "Can you bring the meal at six p.m.?" And the meal came at almost seven. Yeah, so that was a good system. So that was great. Maybe we've just learnt the system. So order four hours before, and you'll get it five in five hours. Yeah, that's right. So next time we have to order an hour in advance. In fact, we should tell them a day before and give them plenty of warning. Uh, travel and, hacks. Yeah, travel hacks with uh, with Josh and Dan traveling through Africa. Um, what else? I mean, the, one thing that's nice is just that they're, they're such authentic people. I mean, like, so Eric, our guide in, Togo. well, informal guide in Togo, right? He was supposed to be a guy who would just take us on a motorbike ride for uh, a hike uh, to a, a majestic waterfall uh, place. And... Along the way, uh, when, we, when we get to this waterfall in the middle of nowhere, it looks like Avatar. It's like, you know, mm. there's nothing around. It's just butterflies and uh, you're in the middle of nowhere, rainforest, and we go swimming at the base of the waterfall. Well, I go swimming at the base of the waterfall. You're not, you're not stupid enough to risk having a parasite. I've seen too many episodes of <laughs> when parasites go wrong. <laughs> when, in Af- and they, yeah. they often almost... Certainly happen in Africa. So yes, and they usually... I kept the waterline beneath my crotch. Beneath your crotch, because apparently if you pee in the water while you're swimming, they swim up your, into, your, into your doodle. Is that, <laughs> is that what happens? Apparently. 
And so I, whilst Aloha, it looked like a tranquil setting underneath the placid surface of the lake, I was squeezing with all my might to make my dick hole as tight as is humanly possible. There was a lot. It looked it looked relaxing, that swim. It was actually a lot going on under the surface, Dan, that you weren't... I'm glad to. I wasn't yeah. aware of that, quite frankly. <laughs> that was happening. Uh, so we go there and, uh, and Eric, our guide, is like... Um, he picks up a red a shotgun cartridge and he... Uh, a rifle cartridge. That's right. And he goes, this is from the hunters. Uh, and I said, what do they hunt? He said, everything. Monkeys. I said do they eat the monkeys? And he laughed. He was like, of course, if they didn't eat the monkeys, they'd be swinging all through the trees. <laughs> As if having monkeys swinging through the trees would be a real a terrible, a terrible thing. And then when on the motorbikes on the way back into town, you spotted a chameleon yes. on the dirt road, which yep. was amazing. First time I've ever seen a chameleon in the wild. Yep. Perched upright on these little tent pole legs, bright green against the bright red yeah. dirt track. Absolutely still in the middle of the road. Yeah. We missed it by, it couldn't have been more than a centimetre. No. But he's so high as well. He's like, yeah. he's standing up. He's like. Very proud. Yeah, that's right. He's like half a foot off the ground. Yeah. Uh, and so we wanted to take photos. Yeah, I told my, I told my um, motorcycle um, rider to stop. Yeah. Turn around. The chameleon hadn't moved a centimeter. Was still in exactly the same position. Yeah. Despite the fact that a motorbike had missed it by a centimeter. That's right. Beautiful creature. So uh, Eric takes off his uh, his thong, his flip flop, and he uh, and he starts whacking the ground next to it to get it to move. And it starts moving. It starts changing color from bright bright green to it looks like the chameleon is looking at the long grasses at the edge of the <laughs> road, the road, thinking that's probably a place where I want to get to right now. And he starts going a mottled shade of darker green, the same color as the grass, and. Um, Eric, instead of just thwacking the flip-flop next to the... starts kind of hitting the chameleon. And I said, no, no, let him go, leave him. He said, leave him? He said, I want to catch him. I've got a box for him at... I've got a box to, to mount him in at home. And, and I was like... And even when we were walking through this jungle wilderness, he drank a bottle of water and then threw the bottle of the plastic bottle of water right next to the trail. And you picked it up and you were mm. like, no, 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 don't do that. Let's take it. So if anyone was under any illusion that like the native peoples are in perfect harmony with the land and the only reason why there's a problem is because white imperialists come in and despoil everything, I got to say, that, that's not my experience on this particular trip. Uh, you know, all Eric wants is to be able to throw trash wherever he, uh, wherever he wants to, shoot as many monkeys as he can eat, and uh, welcome mount us. A, mount a chameleon. And mount the odd chameleon, maybe uh, dine on some squashed chameleon with his white friends. Uh, you know, they're very welcoming and friendly people, but maybe the memo about environmentalism hasn't quite uh, reached these shores yet. That's right. That's right. Yeah. I've since got a number of really sweet messages from him. Have you? Again, to the to the why point. Is he, like, why isn't he texting me? Why has he got a he's got a side hustle with you? I mean, we can't explain it. We've got some kind of adulterous relationship going on. I thought we were a threesome. (laughs) This is polyamory gone wrong. Uh, So that's nice. And I mean, the whole that's sort of emblematic. I think of. I don't want to like bring everything back into a Western context, but since Africa is the by definition the most African place in the world, uh, and you know is really the place where one would go to determine the state of race relations in in the world it's incredibly welcoming and friendly and and the furthest thing from 
woke or identitarian kind of right. racial politics. Right. Like I don't get any sense that no there's sense. any any kind of nationalistic inhibitedness from anybody no. here. They are amazingly open to us. They We are amazingly open to them. There's none of the hang-ups, I think, that uh, no, I that think you right. find in, in the West, racial hang-ups. And, yeah, we've uh, been talking a fair bit about that subject whilst yeah. on this trip, actually, and kind of... I mean, it's hard. It's obviously we're just scratching the surface, so it's yeah. hard to know yeah. kind of what's really going on, you know, in the discussions that are had between people here. But at least it feels like that there is an absence of that. Mm. There's more just immediacy to to engagements and relationships and and conversations. That's really yeah, pleasant. yeah. And I mean, it also that that extends so far as to us even exploring the you know some of the most fascinating things that we've done were like today going into the slave dungeons in mm. Elmina Castle and Cape Coast Castle. These were two of the biggest slave dungeons in the world. Uh, Elmina Castle is the oldest European building in sub-Saharan Africa, yeah, uh, built by the Portuguese in the 1400s and then you know, uh, as a fortress and then turned into these completely horrific and horrendous uh, slave dungeons where they would cram you know, a thousand people into into an area the size of a hotel room, essentially. Yeah. And they were in pitch darkness with no toilets and no water and anything. So they were just living in their own shit for months on end before they would get shipped out. And you know, we're being shown around this place by the descendants of the people to whom that was done, uh, us being descendants of people who perpetrated that and also in several cases against whom that was done as well. I mean, in the case of like Jews and stuff, if you want to go back to ancient Egypt and the Holocaust and whatever. And the, there's none of, there's no kind of, I don't know, no sense of hang-ups or a legacy of anything other than this is a thing that happened. We can all recognise that it was a horrendous thing that happened. This is the place where it happened. Mm, this is how it happened. This is how it happened. Let's commemorate the awfulness and... That's it. Now we're friends. Shall we eat some squash chameleons? You know what I'm saying? It's like, that's it. Break bread. Um, so the, the, the other than the time that service takes, is there anything else uh, bad that you want to say about uh, your experience here? No. Maybe, I, ha maybe, hag maybe uh, here's the oh, thing. Yes. Haggling okay. and prices. Yes. So the, we and thought this would be a... distinction between different, different countries have a different cultural approach to haggling. Yeah. So we're good hagglers. I consider myself a master haggler from having spent a lot of time backpacking around Southeast Asia and India and uh, Egypt. And, and with no shame. Like you're with good, no shame. You're good with no shame, Josh, which is like that's, you need that as a superpower when you're haggling. Exactly. That's part, that's part of the deal. Shamelessness. Yeah. I mean, it's fine. Um, but uh, the, I just, I'm just baffled by the West African approach. Like we would... We would want to take a 40-minute car ride where we knew the price is $3 each and we'd ask what would it cost for us to go alone in the car and the response would be $50 for <laughs> yes. a 40-minute car ride. Yeah. And, like, you can get an Uber in Sydney to do that right. pretty much. Right. And we would say... No, 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 no. That's ridiculous. It's supposed to be six dollars. So let's for the for the car to ourselves. Let's make it twelve. And they'd say, 
and they'd just walk away or they'd just be like, it's 50. Yeah, I don't, I don't quite understand. It seemed to, to be um, not just three times more than it should be, but actually 10 or 15 times more. Yeah, that's right. And, and for prices where it's not 10 or 15 times more than just the local price, but actually naming a price which would be a high price in Paris. Yeah. And then they let us walk away. I mean, even when we're in markets and stuff, like shopping for a T-shirt, like we wanted to get little, uh, you know, outfits for our kids. And they would start by quoting $50 for a little boy's T-shirt. Right. And we would say, well, $5, surely, you know, like, I mean, I can get one at Kmart for $5. Uh, <laughs> surely the manufacturing costs are cheaper here. Uh, and they'd say... 45 and we'd I'd say you know eight and then I'd just walk away and they'd let me go right right. like why why don't they want to sell their 50 cent t-shirt for eight dollars well we had a theory that it was the relative paucity of tourists means that you've got such low volume that you then if if one happens to come along you've got to try your darndest to to get best price for that person yeah. I think we dismissed that theory. Just, there, there is no good theory. I don't quite understand it. Yeah. And the, the, the in Ghana, at least, this is not the case in the, in the less touristed countries of Benin and Togo, but in Ghana, at least, the instantaneous, universal, ubiquitous, mandatory hassling the moment you get out of a car or the moment you arrive anywhere by people running over to you and telling you about their art, telling you about their crafts, telling you about the bracelet that they're going to make for you, telling you about the, I'm holding in my hand, a shell that was, uh, that says, to my proud Australian friend, Mr. Daniel, from your friend, Joe Kingsley, have a blessed day at Elmina Castle. And then with the date, Ghana. And his telephone number written in, <laughs> written, written in Sharpie on the inside of the, uh, of the shell. And I, this, I should point out it's mm, a beautiful shell. Gorgeous shell. It has now been de- defaced with Sharpie covering the entire Dan, outside surface Dan, of it. Dan, get a bit of metho and a cotton wool bud. You'll be, <laughs> you'll, yeah, you'll, it'll be a beautiful I'm, shell I'm once more. It. I'm keeping it. But so what happened was we show up at Elmina Castle, get out of the car. They come up and say, welcome, my friend. Welcome, welcome. Uh, you know, what's your name? And you say Daniel. And then we go into the castle. And the, by the time you've come out, they've mocked up this shell and uh, in exchange for that, they want you to donate to the local uh, soccer, the local kids soccer club, which doesn't exist. Uh, and uh, they say, uh, you know, average donation, maybe uh, $300. Oh, that's what I like. $300. Yes. $350. They present you with a ledger, which <laughs> includes right. the, the five previous donors. Yes. All written in a suspiciously <laughs> similar, similar handwriting. handwriting. Yeah. And yeah. donating amounts like Three hundred dollars, yeah. you know, a hundred dollars, one hundred and fifty dollars. Yeah. There's a series of things I like. I, I quite liked about it: anchoring yeah. around the amount of money that a normal donation was. That's right. Having pre-researched your information and then adding it to a shell while you're away, yep. and then presenting it as a present, and then guilting you. Yeah, yeah exactly. We're going to give you this present. Now, could you also help yeah. my family? I mean, it's tricky because in situations like this, I always feel terrible because there's an obviously massive disparity of income. Right. I mean, you, I want to do the right thing, but I want to do the right thing. I, I also, I in a in a, especially in a country with a a lot of potential to rapidly grow its tourist uh, infrastructure mm. and its attractiveness to tourists. I don't want to 
vote with my wallet to encourage the most aggressive and manipulative behavior by the people here who interact with tourists. I mean, I want to support the good tourism here and not just by default always give in to the loudest and angriest and most aggressive and most conniving. It's always a tricky one. It's always a conundrum. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, there are places that we all know you hear horror stories of people just getting so exhausted by being hassled. Uh, right. Morocco. Right. Uh, you know, um, Kuta Beach in Bali. And it's not that these places, the tourists stop going to these places, but they do foster the wrong kind of tourists. And I'd, I'd like to think that West Africa can retain some of its friendliness and charm and yeah. attract tourists who are after that rather than after... And not even, I'm not sure if it's about the tourists so much as the behaviour of how, how you set up a place where tourists come and what, what sort of things do you do, what, what sort of behaviours do you encourage of the local people to, to do things, to provide things, to create things that are valuable, that people want. Yes. Rather than just an overbearing kind of a constant, constantly being chased down the streets. Uh, the other thing, another couple of observations, uh, every time we've parked a vehicle or our <laughs> driver has parked a vehicle, no matter how sparse the area to park in, there's been a seven to eight minute negotiation with locals who come running up to try to get him to park in a perfectly straight line uh, or in some very, very specific Place. There was a great one today. The car park would have been a hundred meters by a hundred meters. Huge, a huge massive area. area. And we were the. I think we were the. the yeah, there were, the, two there were two cars. Two cars there. We and it's the a third. massive. It's a massive area with nothing there. And we spend a good three or four minutes <laughs> backing and in and backing out so that we're per, we, so there's the perfect distance between us and the car next to us, as if the place is about to be flooded with 150 other cars. It's not going to happen, guys. You don't have to worry about it. <clears throat> Strange obsession about that. Yeah. And the other, uh, the other is that if they're going to have more tourists here, I think the, the ability to, like, book places to stay and have the people know that you're – have the people basically check their reservations more than once every 72 hours would be good because oh. we frequently book <laughs> – we book places on the same day or the day before – and we've never shown up and had them know that we were coming. That's right. They show surprise. They, they're surprised. Yeah, you, you they're it, shocked. You booked it yeah. today. Yeah, that's right. That's what, yeah, that's what one of them said. Yeah, I was like, I came in and it's a, it was a hotel. I mean, I would understand if it's like a, this also happens at Airbnbs out in the middle of nowhere. But this was a proper hotel. And I come in and I say, the, uh, you know, we have a reservation. And she's like, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, we can't find it. What method did you book by? I'm like, uh, Airbnb. Oh, wow, Airbnb. Uh, okay, uh, when did you book it? Uh, this morning. This morning? <laughs> like, you mean this morning? That's right. Like, yeah. You had, to, yeah. you had to coach them to open up their Airbnb app. Yeah, yeah. Which we thought was amusing because there's a solution to that. It's called set notifications. That's right. It so would be good if... Tells you if yeah, that's books. right. The notifications would tell you if someone, if someone booked... Um, okay. I mean, I think uh, overall, um, uh, thumbs up, thumbs down, or thumbs sideways on uh, oh, massive on West thumbs Africa. up. Massive yeah. thumbs up. We've probably been complaining for way more, but that's yeah. just, that's just part of the jovial fun when you. Well, when we're you also we're also tired and hangry and dusty and yeah. sweaty at the end of yeah. our trip. It's not an easy place to travel, but actually, you know what? It is easier than I'd been led to believe. I totally agree. 
totally agree. I, I mean, I, um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be concerned bringing my young kids back here, traveling no. around. Again, it wouldn't necessarily be easy, but it's not something that kind of couldn't be done. I mean, not only have we never felt in danger. Uh, certainly not threatened by anyone apart from the official who wanted to drag you in and beat you in the head. Uh, But uh, I think just the logistics actually have been somewhat easier than I would have thought. Yes, everything takes a long time, Mm. but things function in a way that... uh, There's always a solution. There's always a... Exactly. There's always a de facto solution to anything because they're quite nimble... Uh, and chaotic places, right. you know, they're they're sort of they're anti-fragile in a way, like right. to use the jargon. It's in a way that that countries that are very very precise, if if something goes wrong, then all hell breaks loose because nobody knows what to do. Like you know, if the if the train stopped running to time in Japan, everything would fall apart right. because they're used to everything working. Whereas <clears throat> here, it just feels like like we spoke to a a colleague of mine who had been stationed here as a journalist before we left and he was like, just expect everything to be a complete schmozzle, you know, when you get, you're going to be constantly waiting around for bush taxis forever, the buses are never going to go the correct way, they're going to break down on the roads all the time, nothing's going to work. That hasn't really been true for no, us. that's right. I mean, like you say, you've got to have some patience, um, there's kind of friction at any kind of change-off point in kind of transport. Um, a four-hour trip on paper turns into an eight-hour trip, but not necessarily in an unpleasant way. It's just mm. part of the journey. Yeah. Uh, so the moral of the story is uh, come to West Africa, uh, shoot all the monkeys you want, <laughs> and eat all the squashed chameleons. Uh, thank you, Dan. Thanks, Josh. Back to regular programming next week. Thank you.